0: Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. For today's episode, we saddle up for part two of our Six-Gun Justice Worldwide West tour stop in the land down under, Australia, which, as we established in part one, has a long indigenous history with the Western genre. Riding across the Australian range with me today is my guest co-host, Andrew Nett, a homegrown Australian pulp maven. Andrew is a writer of fiction and nonfiction, a researcher, reviewer, and pulp scholar. He is the award-winning co-editor of three collections from PM Press, Girl Gangs, Biker Boys, and Real Cool Cats, Pulp Fiction and Youth Culture 1950-1980, to Sticking It to the Man, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction, 1956 to 1980, and Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1980. He shares his passion for all things pulp related on his longtime blog, Pulp Curry, which unsurprisingly can be accessed at www.pulpcurry.com. <laughs> Howdy, friend. Thanks for hanging out with me today.
1: Very nice to finally talk to you, Paul. As you said, we've corresponded a bit and we've never actually spoken before.
0: Maybe that's a good thing. We might end up fighting by the end of this and going (laughs) in our separate directions. You never know. (laughs) I'm interested to begin with about how you started Pulp Curry and what was the motivation behind that?
1: Oh, look, yes, it's pop Curry. It's, uh, these days, having a sort of actual website it feels a lot like reading a broadsheet newspaper on a very crowded train. It's, <laughs> it's, it's quite unfashionable uh, while everyone is on their iPhones. I started it about 2010. I wanted to start writing much more about film and books and culture. The pulp thing was only just flickering in my mind at that stage. Yeah, it's still going.
0: is it amazing how times change? As you said, blogs are blasé. Nobody really goes to them anymore, but in many ways, I as a writer and perhaps you too, we need a landing spot for people to be able to go to still. And I think that's what the blog kind of accomplishes for us.
1: Oh, very much. Look, I've thought about, I mean, there's so many things you can do. You can do all that Patreon stuff now, and you can put it behind paywalls and all that sort of stuff. And I've thought about that, but that requires an audience. But it also, as you say, it's an access point by which people can get links to my fiction and my nonfiction. But also, look, despite everything, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I still enjoy writing for Pop Curry. I still enjoy writing about crime fiction, crime film, pulp fiction, etc., etc. And I enjoy reading other people's blogs as well, even though there's far fewer of them than there used to be. And a lot of them, as I say, are now behind paywalls.
0: Frankly, I have to keep mine going because I think I'd hurt myself if I tried to do something on TikTok or some of the more
1: current things. Oh, that kind of micro-blogging or TikTok is certainly not for me. I enjoy Instagram. I enjoy Twitter. But nothing like a good meaty blog post sometimes to get your teeth into. And the dwindling circle of people who still have blogs that I frequent reasonably regularly, I still enjoy that.
0: And I do too. But today, I want to talk about the Western in Australia. It's very clear, as we've made this tour of the worldwide West, that everywhere has a fascination for Westerns.
1: Australia is no different in that regard, absolutely. The notion of the Western, however you now want to define that, and it has changed over time, is a global phenomenon. I've often thought, certainly in the Australian context, the Western is the most reviled of literary formats because, of course, people think of the Pulp Western of cowboys and Indians, that sort of genre, those things from the 50s and the 60s, with not particularly fashionable in terms of a literary sense, although still incredibly popular. As we'll probably talk about, there was an Australian pop publisher, started in the 1950s, Cleveland, that was still doing Westerns as late as about 2019, I think it was. I go into second-hand bookstores all the time, particularly in rural areas, and they have an entire wall of pop westerns, and the owners tell me they turn over all the time. People are reading this stuff, even if they're not necessarily blogging or writing about it. But yeah, I used to think it was romance that was one of the most reviled of literary formats in Australia. I think it's the western now, but at the same time, fast forward to now, you've also got this renaissance of what you might term revisionist westerns. That's certainly a very big format on the screen, but also on the page. The rise of that sort of genre is really interesting.
0: As you say, the Western is a reviled genre, or at least looked down upon. Part of that is the Western has run into political correctness. The truth about what we did to the Native Americans and the white savior concept of the Western is no longer popular. In fact, that's what makes the Western reviled. That's what's led to this spate of revisionist Westerns, and I think it started with Soldier Blue, which really turned the cavalry into the bad guys in that film.
1: Political correctness, if you want to call it, that is one thing. That's a whole other issue. But in terms of that old school Western, that sort of Western that's in that tradition of the pulp Westerns that were produced certainly in Australia in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and going back earlier though, probably ran also into the limitations of the particular genre. No one really has done a great deal of work on the pulp Western in Australia. Let's define these two, the pulp western and then the, western, the revisionist western. Let's just call them that for the time being. No one's really done a lot of work on the pulp western. A Queensland academic called Tony Johnson Woods, she did a bit of work on Leonard Mears, who was a prolific western writer of pulps. He wrote that, under Marshall Rover.
0: That yeah. was the Larry and Stretch westerns?
1: Amongst others, yes. That was probably his best known title. She did a little bit of work on that and there's been a little bit of work done on him, but there's just so many and there's a perception of sameness in the output of most of them that I think has put people off researching and looking into them as a phenomena. It is changing political times and I think that's a good thing where people are reassessing how the Western has approached certain topics. Not that Western has always been crude about approaching certain topics. I watch old 50s Westerns all the time, and I'm frankly astounded at how politically sophisticated some of them are. But anyway, others aren't.
0: I would agree with that. And if you look at the early episodes of shows like Gunsmoke, you can see that they're definite morality plays without any easy answers. The Western really does open itself up to that type of take on human nature.
1: Oh, look, sure, absolutely. Last year, I watched the Oxbowl incident. That's a gut punch of a Western with a very overt queer subtext looking at issues of vigilante justice and masculinity in the West in the early 1950s. Quite astounding, really. Of course, for every Oxbow incident, there's a lot of more generic forms of the West. <laughs> but the point being, I think that it's a political shift, but it's also that there's only so many times you can just rewrite that same story about the, the cowboy coming to the bad town and taming it or a range war or something like that. Very narrowly defined, only so many times you can write that, which is basically what Leonard Mears did, just rewrote that same story again and again.
0: With Cleveland Westerns, and I want to try to explain something to my basically American audience, because this is something that I'm finding in Mexican Westerns, German Westerns, and Australian Westerns. There's a difference between paperbacks and booklets these booklets that seem to be not sold in bookstores, but are available in supermarkets and drugstores and those types of places to the mass public because they're so cheaply produced. I think that's where Cleveland looked for their audience. Am I right or wrong in that?
1: Yeah, I think that's where most of the Australian pulp publishers looked for their audience, certainly in the early years. We need to go back and situate this in the origins of Australia. Very briefly, Australian pulp fiction has its origins, ironically, in restrictions that were introduced in the late 1930s to basically keep out American popular print material. So American pulp magazines and novelettes and dime novels were coming into Australia in the 20s and 30s in huge numbers. Various groups of people basically opposed that. And it became quite a powerful sort of lobby group. There was a group of people who were opposed to the salacious content of a lot of those American pulp magazines and novelettes. There was a sort of nationalist stream which saw them as having a negative impact on language and on national mores. There was also a very significant component of this lobby group that was worried by the fact these dumped pulp magazines fell outside the sort of jurisdiction of the London cartel, which basically for the first half of the last century dominated Australian bookselling. So restrictions were introduced to keep out mainly targeted American pulp magazines and comics and novels. Then during World War II, there were very strict regulations introduced to prevent the importation of non-essential goods from dollar countries. It's an interesting question how effective all those regulations were. There's definite evidence American pulp material and British pulp material were still coming into Australia in the 40s and the early 50s. So there were a collection of Australian printers and some early publishers, mainly in Sydney, who realised that as a result of these restrictions, there was, was an increased demand for reading material as a result of these restrictions. So they branched out into pulp publications. They came in a couple of waves. There was a wave of them that came immediately after World War II of which I suppose Horwitz Publications or Transport Publishing, I've had a number of names, were the main one. And then there was, as you say, Cleveland was probably in the second wave of those pulp publishers, which was in the early 50s. The Western was one of the earliest forms of pulp those publishers embarked on. And it was in a format called the Novelette, which was your stapled soft cover publication publication. And one of the key differences between traditional publishing and this new group of pulp publishers is that the pulp publishers targeted these novelettes at newsagents and canteen and sort of railway station kiosks and places like that. That was their main selling market. They bypassed the bookshop, which was seen as the main focus of traditional publishing, going for this more popular market at the railways and kiosks and newsstands and things like that. That pulp industry probably never numbered more than a dozen or so players, but they were whittled down in the 50s and 60s. And by the 70s, it was starting to run out of steam due to various reasons, as was the case around the world in terms of pulp publishing.
0: There were other publishers that did Westerns, but Cleveland really made that their bread and butter. They were doing often four titles a week, for years on end. They published thousands of titles What's interesting to me is, yes, these were novelettes, 25,000 words or 30,000 words sometimes, but they hooked into incredibly prolific authors. These were people like Leonard Mears, who wrote as Marshall Grover. They would turn out literally hundreds of these stories. And for Cleveland, what is fascinating is their most prolific author is Jack Masterson, which is a pseudonym for a woman who was born in Minnesota, but lives in Australia, whose grandfather was a county sheriff and worked closely with the area's Indians in America. And she is the most prolific pulp Western writer for Cleveland. That's something
1: I did not know. There you go. I'm going to have to look into that. (laughs) I had heard of Jack Masterson, but I did my PhD on Horwitz Publications, which was the other big publisher who also did a lot of Westerns, but as you say, were not as focused on the Western as Cleveland. So I've done a lot on Horwitz. I have done a bit on Cleveland, but that's a whole other publishing ecosystem, Cleveland. That's what you realize when you start really digging into a publisher, how complex it is. And I was doing my PhD on Horwitz. I did interview Melissa Atkins, who was the granddaughter of the founder of Cleveland, Jack Atkins. At the point, it was becoming clear the company was about to close down. We had a good chat about Cleveland. The main thing I was really interested in when I was talking to Melissa Atkins was like, what are you going to do with your records? Are you going to give your records to a library somewhere so that someone can study your company? Unlike a lot of pop publishers in Australia, I believe that they have. It might be the National Library of Australia that they've given all their records to internationally literature thinks of itself as something that is important and worthy of preservation whereas pop just thinks of itself as something that's entertainment and as such never really has an eye to preserving its future sort of records and all that sort of stuff Australian libraries have very little on Australian pop publishers and it would be great if hopefully Cleveland have given their archive to a library somewhere Because they've got distribution records, they've got all the material going back, I think, until the founding of the company. That would be an amazing insight into not only their production schedules, who worked for them, but also who their audience was. All of this material would be absolute gold.
0: It would be a very deep dive into the success of the company. Yes, they had to close the batwing doors, as they said, but they ran for 65 years as one of the most successful publishers in Australia on the back of the Western. Their novelettes, these cheaply produced stapled pamphlets, basically, had lurid covers on them, just like the old pulp magazines that would be used as a sizzle to sell what was inside. You would have people that would go to a train station or a grocery store and they would be eye-catching. And that's what would sell. And they produced so many of these. Their print runs were enormous.
1: Oh, absolutely. Jack Atkins, who was the founder of Cleveland, was actually a former New South Wales secretary of the Democratic Labour Party, which was a conservative in the early 1950s. The Australian Labour Party split. And the Democratic Labor Party was a conservative split from Labor. They were an anti-communist. They broke away because they thought that Labor was too in the thrall of communism. But so he was quite conservative and his Westerns were quite sober. There was no sex. There was not even a great deal of violence in the Westerns. There was no violence on the covers. That was very similar with their war material. They also had a very long-running series called Larry Kent, which was a sort of faux American PI series. Larry Kemp was a New York private investigator. It actually has its origins as an Australian radio show, but Cleveland bought the rights and then bought it out as a long-running American PI series, which I remember seeing in news agents when I was young in the 70s. But my point being that in the late 60s, the covers certainly became more lurid, and what Cleveland did, which took me ages to figure out, actually, was they were starting to use Spanish pop cover art in their Western were quite lurid. I remember very clearly, particularly seeing those very lurid Spanish pop covers in the 1970s. They really stood out.
0: And with the Westerns, the art was certainly more intriguing than the standard art that Cleveland had been putting on their Westerns. And I think it was an attempt to feed an audience and to sell more. It's a sales point.
1: It was also very similar in the US. Pop's main selling point was sensation. It was not just that it was going through news agencies and such, but in a sense it was sensational. Publishers, particularly Horwick, had a monopoly on what was lurid and sensational in terms of print matter for much of for the two decades after World War Two, and, of course, what's happening in the 1960s although it's bubbling away for a long time, and it's happening much earlier in the US, but it happens much later in Australia, is the sort of increasing sexualisation of aspects of the culture, breakdown of censorship systems. And so, yes, pop publishers, including Cleveland's, they have to compete with that. Their material has to become more lurid Marshall Grover, again, was quite conservative in his tastes in terms of his westerns, and they follow certain stylistic guidelines. But the cover art was becoming very salacious by the 1970s, including nude women and people being killed on the front covers, something that in the 1950s and early 1960s with those kind of westerns, you would would never have envisaged.
0: Oh, it would have outraged people.
1: It would have outraged people. But of course, by the 1970s, that's just, yep, whatever.
0: Australia has also come up with a television series that fits into what we're seeing in America as the modern Western. So this would be the Longmire series over here, Walker, Texas Ranger, those types of things that are Western set in modern day. But Australia has done a tremendous job with a series called Mystery Road about an indigenous Aborigine detective in the outback, which is basically the Wild West.
1: Yeah, we'd say an Indigenous detective. That's right.
0: Is that as popular in Australia as it has been around the world?
1: Yeah, look, it's certainly been popular. I think there's been two Mystery Road films, both of them by an Indigenous director called Ivan Sen, and starring quite a prominent Indigenous Australian actor called Aaron Pedersen as Jay Swan. And that has then spun off into various television series on the Australian Broadcasting Commission, which is our national broadcaster.
0: I understand the two movies are the beginning and the ending of Jay Swan's career timeline-wise, and the television series fills in the gap between the two. I have
1: seen both movies. I have to be honest with you, Paul, and say I have not watched the television series. I just haven't got around to it. There is a new iteration of the television series that has just come out, which I do want to try and catch, which actually is prequel.
0: Young Jake Swan, right?
1: Yes, that's right. Look, I think they're interesting. It's not the first Indigenous detective, I might add, in Australian crime or Western fiction. You'd need to go back to Arthur Upfield's Boney novels, but of course they were quite controversial because when the TV series came out, it was played by a white man in blackface. That was still in the very early 70s, so that gives you an idea of how far we were running behind in terms of Indigenous relations in Australia, and really until about the 1980s. But look, the Mystery Road films, I certainly enjoyed them, and they're westerns. They're also marketed very heavily. They look very much at Indigenous experience. They also are looking at aspects of Australia's outback and what's going on in there in terms of drugs and mining and things like that. They're good and they've been quite popular. I think that they're the most overt example of of the sort of rise of local indigenous Australian revisionist Westerns that that has happened recently. And that's the other thing about the sort of material released by Cleveland and the material that was released by Horwitz. They're all what I would call faux American Westerns all these countless thousands of books, all set in the American West. They're all written largely by these guys who never set foot in America, which is fascinating, really.
0: Paul Whelan and Keith Harrington, none of them have been to America.
1: That's right. So there's this huge industry after the war of these faux American Westerns in Australia, which, and none of them picked up on a much earlier heritage in Australia of our Bushrangers, which I think is interesting. Why has the Western proven such a popular, durable format in Australia? Well, there's a number of reasons you can say for that, but one of them is that they very much tap into that notion of the bushrangers, and for your listeners, bushrangers were convicts that escaped their servitude and fled into the bush where they became bandits.
0: Most famously, Ned Kelly.
1: Most famously, Ned Kelly, who's a a national sort of icon. People overuse the word icon, but he nonetheless is a national icon, for better or for worse. And he's also had his revisionist treatment too. We've had about three or four films featuring Ned Kelly, each one of which gets progressively more and more revisionist. So you've got this period in the early part of the 19th century where you've got Bushranger fiction, some of the earliest pre-pulp fiction that appears in newspapers and also Digest and very early paperbacks and things like that. That's all focusing on Bushranger's, We also had very early local film industry in the early part of the 20th century, which was focused on bush rangers. In fact, one of the earliest, if not the earliest motion picture made anywhere in the world was a sort of Australian Ned Kelly film, the name of which totally escapes me now. So that material, those Bushranger films, which were in the early 20th century, were so popular that governments in a number of Australian states were really concerned about their impacts on law and order and that they were undermining sort of respect for government and actually banned them during the early part of the century. And that essentially destroyed our film industry until the 1970s. But anyway, that's another story. You've got, <laughs> so you've got the focus on the bush ranger, then post-World War II, you've got the Pulp publishers come online. They're mainly doing faux Americana Westerns. And you really have to look hard to find anything. Those pulp publishers were publishing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's about bush rangers. I've found one or two of them, literally, and the rest is just that total formulaic Pop Americana Western. And then in the 1970s, yes, you start to see that being revised, those frontier myths in Australia. You start to see a reappraisal of our convict times and just how horrific and brutal they were. You start to see an increasing awareness of Indigenous rights but also the fact that our colonisation of the land was incredibly brutal and that we had an incredibly fraught and violent relationship. It was essentially a war against the Indigenous people who were in Australia before white people came. You start to see a reappraisal of women in those frontier societies. So all those sort of things start to bubble away in films like the chant of Jimmy Braxton. That was 1978. That's basically about an Aboriginal man, a of an Aboriginal mother and a white father, is the victim of horrific racism, marries a white woman but is still abused terribly by white people and just goes on a, basically escapes and goes on a killing spree and finds himself on the run from the law. Very influential film based on a very influential book. That starts to bubble away. And then in the 80s, you have a bit of a drip feed of these. And then it's only in the late 90s that you've really started to have a resurgence of that revisionist Western, a number of books dealing with our convict times, dealing with indigeneity. And also you're starting to see that on the screen. Films like Sweet Country, films The Proposition. It's quite a sort of popular aspect of film and literature now in Australia, that revisionist history.
0: And that brings us to Mystery Road, which is really the current incarnation of that.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: (laughs) I don't mean to cut you off, Andrew, but that's the Chuckwagon Triangle telling us it's time to wrap up this episode with some shout outs and shootouts. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. It's a fascinating subject, and I'm glad that you shared it with me.
1: My pleasure.
0: Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Certainly. Thanks to our Six-Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the donate button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six-Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride.